Welcome to this teaching from the Refuge Church online experience. We're happy you're listening. As a reminder, at the end of all of our teachings, you'll have an opportunity to participate in the biblical practice of communion. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, consider gathering the elements, such as a piece of bread or a cracker, and your beverage of choice. And take a couple of minutes at the end to remember and participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also encourage you to do it with at least one other person, if possible. Thank you. Hopefully you got a copy of this book. This is the last one I have. So if you, if you didn't get a copy, your household um, didn't get a copy, uh, this is the last one I have. Um, and you're welcome to it. But uh, I, will, I will get that to you after the service, um, if you promise to read it. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, I hope it's speaking to you the way it's speaking to me. Um, this isn't a comfortable read all the way through. This process isn't comfortable, at least for me it isn't. Realizing how ingrained in me religion is. Um, and uh, I'm beginning to realize that religion isn't a church problem. It's a human problem. And by the way, I, for those of you in the church, you know, like there, I know some people go, well, the word religion isn't bad. And I agree, religion isn't bad. Actually, the New Testament endorses religion. I'm using the word religion to talk about legalism because when the world says religion, they mean legalism. Um, like, taking care of orphans and widows and all that, that's religion, the Bible says, and it's good. But So just know, when I say religion, I'm just trying to say a word that most people in the world connect with, legalism. So I, I'm just coming to realize that religion isn't a church problem, it's a world problem. We all have a religion. We all have legalism. We all have a ladder we have to climb in order to be something or to be near God or be happy, more money, better relationships, whatever. If I just had this, it's all legalism. And uh, it's from the fall, that's, I, I truly believe that that's where legalism was instituted when Adam was told there's something missing in your life and in order for you to be more like God, you need to do something. That's the definition of legalism. Eat this fruit, do something, and then you can be holy. The original sin was a sin of legalism and that has been passed down. All of us feel this thing in our hearts because it is true that we are missing something. It is true that we are broken. It's the solution that's the that's the problem. If I do something, I can fix this. And uh, you can't believe that you can do something to fix the problem and at the same time acknowledge the size and scope of the problem. Because if the problem is fixable by you, it's obviously smaller than a problem that only God can fix. Right? So you have to minimize your sin, actually. Ironically, legalism, which seems to be very sin-focused, actually has to minimize your sin in order for you to solve it. This sin problem is fixable by you just being a better person. It's sort of like, you know, having, a, 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 having cancer versus being, you know, overweight. It's like, okay, well, if I got on the treadmill and ate some broccoli once in a while, I could solve that problem. I'm sorry, I can eat as healthy as I want, and I can get on that treadmill, but if I've got a tumor growing in my body, it's beyond my ability to cure it. And there are people who have died living in denial because it's like, I can fix this. No, you can't. It's bigger. It's too big for you. So legalism minimizes sin to the point, well, I can fix this. And actually grace... Grace has an accurate picture of sin. Our sin is so much bigger than we can imagine. And I think if we saw it for what it was, we would all agree 
this is unfixable. I, I, I can't even begin to fix this problem. So today, this is going to be a little different. It's going to be less like a sermon and more like, um, I don't know if any of you have gone to counseling. My favorite part of counseling is actually the, sort of the education piece. Like I loved, you know, I, you know when I, when, I, when I went on my sabbatical and I had three or four, day, four days with uh, my, this guy, three hours a day, it's like, I am paying this guy to listen to me talk about myself. This is amazing. <laughs> it was so great. But the talking about myself part is, is good. I like that. But after a while, it's like, okay, we can just, you know, walk around this mountain over and over again. But I'd like to learn something. Like, I'd like to actually, like, figure out how to not be this way. And so the education piece of counseling it's kind of my favorite part. That opens a whole new world of, oh, my goodness, I've never seen relationships like that. I've never seen, you know, um, self, I, I, my identity that way or whatever it might be. So um, anyway, today I want you to kind of maybe come today with the idea that this is like that part of counseling. And um, this is like, I'm your addiction counselor. I've got bad news. Like, you, you do have an addiction. You are addicted to sin, and we're here to break that addiction, right? And so this, imagine this being the equipping portion of counseling. That's kind of what I, I'm going after today in, in this message. There will be Bible in it, so it counts. But, um, but I, I want to go through the control cycle. We can put that up on the, on the screen. This is the control cycle, and this is in the book, um, this is a cycle we all go through when we get in a, you know, a, a pattern of sin. And so I just want to kind of go through and define each of these uh, steps on the cycle. And maybe you can identify with them. Some of us, I think, actually, we whip through this thing in like a second. Some of us, we kind of camp out in one or two places that are like, this is my sweet spot. Like unhealthy self-thoughts, man. That's, I live there. That's, I've got a second home on the unhealthy self-thoughts uh, portion of the cycle. But anyway, I just want to describe this because my hope is this, that as we're equipped and we become aware of this cycle in our lives, maybe we can be more aware in the real world when it's happening. What, what are these thoughts? Where, what am I doing here? And where, where am I heading with this? And maybe we can... Break, break the cycle, if that makes sense. Some things don't have to be, like, mystical and supernatural. Some things can just be, like, I'm going to make a decision to do something different. So, okay. So let's talk about unhealthy self-thoughts. This is where the whole thing kind of starts, right? We, um, <clears throat> we tell ourselves, this is where we tell ourselves false stories about ourselves. We create lies about ourselves to make sense of the pain we've suffered or the pain we've caused. Remember, um, the pain we suffer we call hurt, and the pain we cause is called sin, right? So, or, or pain, uh, pain, hurt and pain, uh, guilt. Sorry, hurt and guilt. The pain we suffer is called hurt, and the pain we cause is called guilt. They're both sin. People sin against you, and that's called hurt. You sin, and it's called guilt. Um, but these two sources of pain speak to us. Somebody treats me a certain way, and I walk away from that conversation. Do you see the look on his face when we ended our conversation? He's thinking something funny about me. And then if you're like me, I go, fast. And I'm like, oh, that's it. He hates me. Well, the truth is he, you know, like, had Taco Bell for lunch, and he really needs to go to the bathroom, so he had to cut the conversation short. And I'm looking, and I'm going, that's it. He's mad at me for something. I knew he hated me. I knew he thought there was something wrong with me. I knew it. And I just, I spend all week until I see him again. Well, and then even when I see him again, I'm kind of avoiding them because, you know, obviously they, they're judging me, and they hate me, and I did something wrong. I know I tend to point the, the arrow at me. 
uh, I don't get mad at you. I get like, oh, man, I blew it. I'm such an idiot. I must have said that. I knew I shouldn't have told that joke. Dang it. You know, whatever. And, but my pain speaks to me. And I start this unhealthy self-thought thing. And boom, we kick off the cycle. And these false stories actually become permission we grant ourselves to find meaning in something less than healthy relationships. Unhealthy self-thoughts give us permission to fail. You know, if, if I had a dad who loved me, I would have turned out different. If, you know, if, if they just were more gracious to me or if, if they just understood where I was coming from or, and we begin to give ourselves permission, like it's harder for me than everyone else. So of course I'm gonna fail. Of course it's gonna be difficult, right? And we start to give ourselves permission. And our view of God and our view of ourselves is distorted by this pain, and it begins to fuel the stories. And we go back to, remember the picture, when you're in the room of good intentions, when you leave grace, that's really what's happening, negative self-thoughts, we begin to leave grace, and we go into good intentions. And in the room of good intentions now, rather than Jesus and I standing shoulder to shoulder working on my sin together, I take his arm off my shoulder and I walk around to the other side of that mountain of sin and now these negative self-thoughts, I'm looking at the mountain, that's all I'm thinking about is this mountain of sin and it changes how I see myself, it changes how I see God and I begin to try to solve these problems that I'm not equipped to solve and I, I stop believing, I stop believing God is able or good enough to solve my flaws. I, hope, I, I think this is not unique to me. This is kind of ironic because of what I'm going to share, but I, I, I think this is a human, can, this is something actually from the book that made me feel so good. Like, other people think that too? This lie gets in my head that I'm uniquely broken in a way that no one else is. And... I know it sounds so silly saying it out loud, but I'm uniquely broken in a way that God can't fix. And so I begin to believe he's not able or maybe he's not even good enough or willing to fix me. Or maybe he wanted me this broken way and I'm just supposed to live this painful life where, you know, relationships are difficult and I'm lonely and all. I, I begin to believe this thing, like I'm so uniquely and different, broken in such a different way that God can't fix me. I feel sorry for myself. I'm a victim of, of God's acts and I, and I lack and, and a lack of his protection. I'm a victim of what he's done, his will, and where were you, God? And then even, even in my negative self-thoughts, I might be thinking I'm a horrible person, but at the same time, entitlement is creeping in. It's real subtle. I deserve. I should have. I don't think he cares fully for me. And he's been holding out on me. Sounds like the garden. Let's read Romans 7, 18 to 20. It says this, but I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. This is this inner conflict that Paul is sharing. There's these thoughts in my head of, I want to do this. I want to be better, and I fail and, and the truth is this, we all, we as saints all have flesh. I'm, you know, there's this sort of a doctrinal debate of like when you are baptized, is that old man dead or not? I believe this. 
At baptism, my flesh received a mortal wound, and he is dying. But I'm still, I'm still dealing with this dying flesh that still wants to do stuff, that still wants to pull me off track. And um, I can feed him or I can starve him out, but I'm still dealing with that flesh. And grace doesn't ignore this truth. It doesn't ignore the truth that I have this flesh in my life that I'm battling. But it is the only solution for it. So we move from our self-talk, from unhealthy self-thoughts, to uh, temptation, resistance, and hiddenness. False stories give us permission to entertain temptation. In the room of good intentions, um, it, it, the room of good intentions ignores the entire rebellious system of permission and only pays attention to acting out. So the room of good intentions doesn't care what's going on in your mind, like this battle that's happening in your mind. It's focused on your actions, your behavior. What's out here is how we fix what's in here, right? And that's why most books on, they say this in the book, that's why most books on addiction and overcoming sin only address uh, techniques to fight temptation. I did a little bit of counseling. I'm not very good at it, um, but I did some. And I, as a Christian counselor, I always said this. Um, the, the world's, uh, the world's uh, worldly counseling offers you uh, tools to manage addiction, to manage temptation, to manage sin problems. But Christian counseling helps you overcome it. We shouldn't have to manage addiction. We should be set free from it. We shouldn't have to manage depression. Last night we were watching, uh, we love Shark Tank. We were watching Shark Tank last night. And there's this young entrepreneur, mid-20s, and her product, it just broke my heart. Her product, she had uh, some, uh, suffered from anxiety in high school and college. And so she... She wanted to help people uh, be more in touch with those things and not have a stigma on mental health issues. So she's created hoodies and sweaters and all that that say, overthinker, anxious. And I'm going, why are you labeling yourself that way? Oh, but see, the, the, world, the world, you can fight anxiety, fight anxiety, fight anxiety, and over time, you either admit defeat that you need a power greater than yourself to overcome this, or we have to change the narrative and say, you know, anxiety is not a bad thing. It's a part of who I am, and I'm just going to own it. <clears throat> and resistance is the only, I love this point right here, resistance is the only tool in the room of good intentions. Resistance is the only tool we have when we enter this cycle. All I can do is try not to sin. Grit my teeth, bite my lower lip, clinch my fists, and I'm going to resist. But here's the truth. Resistance is a form of sin management. And sin management, we talked about this earlier, takes sin lightly as if I could control it. Grace understands the power of sin and acknowledges our need for a Savior to rescue us. James 1, 13 to 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's this cycle that happens. You see it? Just like the cycle of life here that um, we're tempted, we're lured, we're enticed by my own desire. Notice that battle of flesh again. I, there is something in me that still likes sin. That's why I like when people are like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't want to do it. I'm like, yes, you do. Or you wouldn't do it. You do want to do it. Somewhere in you, you want to do it. Let's own that and let's admit there's a part of me that gets something out of this thing. And so we're, we're enticed by our desires. 
Desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. There's this cycle happening here. And sin always produces death. Of course, the devil wishes it was always a physical death, but, you know, if he can't physically kill you just yet, he'll be satisfied with death, like the death of relationships, the death of your joy, the death of your hope, the death of your calling, the death of your marriage. He'll, he'll, he'll settle for that for now. But he, sin always produces death. I found this point interesting. This, the, by the way, this, the content in the book that I'm gleaning from is the conversation between our main character and the woman from the room of grace. And he's talking about, why do I go back and all of this? Is she talking about her cycle, her pattern of sin in her life that she goes through? And this sentence here just struck me this week. It's so powerful. She says, I'm not obsessed with sin. I'm obsessed with the promised pleasure of sin. There's another thing we have to own. Sin is pleasurable for a season. To act like sin isn't attractive is completely a lie. And if you try to tell young people that sin isn't attractive, they're going, miss me with that. Yes, it is. It's fun. Yes, it feels good. There is pleasure in sin for a season. We have to own that. There is something I'm getting out of this. Because you won't ever find a solution if you don't acknowledge, I'm getting something here. What am I getting? And where's, what, how's it healthy? What's the healthy way? I was designed for pleasure. This is a perversion of what God designed me for. What has God, where has God meant for me to meet this pleasure? <clears throat> I could so relate to this too. She says, the problem with resistance is it actually heightens the anticipation of pleasure promised by acting out. The more I resist sin, the more I'm thinking about sin, the more attractive it is. For me, like, just thinking practically in my real life, like, the more I'm like, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm not going to eat a cheeseburger. I'm not going to eat a cheeseburger. I'm not going to eat a delicious, juicy cheeseburger with melted American cheese and bacon. And I'm not going to, it becomes more and more delicious in my mind the more I resist it. <laughs> because that pleasure, there's a pleasure I get out of it. And I, rather than resisting, I mean, what should be happening is, I'm going to feel so good. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to be there to give my daughter away at her wedding. I'm going to fit into those jeans. I don't know. Whatever the thing is. Like, that's the pleasure, right? Like, instead of resisting. Okay, so apply that spiritually. You can do that. In your, you can do that in your own. Take that and translate it. But deep down inside, we all know that resistance is futile. We can feel it like I am going, eventually it's like I'm going to give in to this thing. Um, so my strategy shifts from resistance to hiddenness. So I'm, I, I stop, I give up on the false idea of actually resisting. I just, and now I'm in this mode of hiddenness and I'm just biding my time until I'm going to give in. And creating space is what this step is called, and it looks like a mask of resistance on the outside. On the outside, I'm resisting. But meanwhile, on the inside, I'm planning and I'm plotting where I'm going to get this cheeseburger, when I'm going to get this cheeseburger, what I'm going to do with the bag and the wrapper when I get home so that my wife doesn't see the cheeseburger. I'm planning and plotting, but I'm texting. Yes, I'm doing good today. I went to the gym today for five minutes. I went to the gym, and I drank water out of the drinking fountain and then got back in my car. But I'm, I'm, on the outside, I'm resisting, but on the inside, I'm planning and I'm plotting. He 
And creating space is how I attempt to minimize the impact of acting out on my relationships. I know that my sin affects those around me. And so actually, in this place of masking and hiddenness, rather than saying, guys, I am really struggling right now, and I need help, because I've now decided I'm going to give in, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, bitterness, I've decided in my mind I'm going to give in. So now what I do is I pull away relationally, and I, I am not my authentic self with you because I know I, I'm, I'm going to minimize the impact of my sin. Just think, just practically, if it's, whether it's maybe it's lust and looking at things that I shouldn't look at, I'm pulling away to a private place, right? I, I, I don't know many guys who pull their phone out, you know, in public and look at things they shouldn't look at and, you know, it's, it's a private, I pull away because I'm ashamed of it and because I'm trying to minimize the impact of my sin on everyone around me. And, and it's not just the shameful sins we do that with. We do that with anger and bitterness and all those things. We pull away, maybe not physically, but maybe relationally and emotionally. In order for me to be mad at you, I need to sort of pull away from you and kind of like unrelate to you. So now you're the enemy, and I can be justified in being mad at you. Um, anyway, so um, I forget that the more often I play this out, the greater loss of intimacy I create in my real world. And then, of course, we have acting out, right? After we've done this, we've made our plan, and now we're going to act, we act it out. And we can see it in the life of David, right, with Bathsheba. We can see where it starts with unhealthy self-thoughts, I think. We can see this entitlement because Scripture says at a time when kings go out to war and David felt like, I don't need to go out to war. I've done my time. We're good. I can just sit up here in my little kingdom and I don't, I, I'm entitled to peace. I'm entitled to comfort. And obviously he felt entitled to this woman who belonged to someone else. And the, the, this story is so great because we can see David's attempts at sin management. We can see he blows it, and then he keeps trying to fix the thing because Bathsheba ends up pregnant. So what he does is he says, Uriah, come off the battlefield. Hey, go be with your wife. And Uriah's like, no, 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 no. That's against God's law, and I'm not going to go be with my wife when all my buddies are still out fighting. And so he slept outside the door of his own home to honor his wife, to honor the men that he fought with. And so Uriah's integrity didn't, wouldn't allow David to clean up his mess. So then he had to take the next step, and he plotted to have Uriah killed. So he put him on the front lines and then command all those soldiers to pull back so that Uriah is all on his own and he dies. Right? We see the sin management happening in David's life. And obviously you can see the results. The baby dies. Sin produced death. And after we act out, we go into withdrawal. Sin management, just like I talked about, kicks in, and we try to, uh, we go into damage control mode. And I can't let anyone too close for feel I'll slip and let out the secret, or uh, maybe my betrayal will show on my face. And this withdrawal phase, if you've never been there, I'd love to talk to you. But this withdrawal phase is exhausting because now I'm carrying not only the internal struggle, but now I have the guilt. I've done it. I've acted out, and I'm carrying that, and I'm carrying the, that struggle still happening, and I'm carrying the guilt, and I'm carrying the fear. What if they find out? And I've got to act like I'm pulling it all. We're, we're, we're good. My marriage is good. We don't have any problem. I've got to pretend like everything is all good. And withdrawal becomes absolutely ex exhausting. Because I'm not only dealing with the consequences of my sin, but now I'm dealing with the conviction for my sin. The Holy Spirit is speaking to me. You need to confess you need to confess. Bring this to the light. And I'm, I'm battling and this, um, I'm battling the Holy Spirit inside of me. Have you ever had that where like 
for me, it feels like a balloon blowing up in my throat. Like, I know I need to share this, but I'm so scared of what the consequences will be. And I'm battling with God about, about asking for forgiveness is a form of confession. Um, and, and, or, or, or just confessing to brothers what my thought life or the struggles with lust or whatever the thing might be. And this, this balloon is blowing up in my throat because I know I need to talk to somebody, but I'm battling with the Holy Spirit. And this battle is called justifying. I justify my behavior. Maybe I, if you're like me, I don't necessarily justify that my sin was not sin, but I justify why I don't need to confess it. Like, God, I've told you, I prayed, we were, and I'm not doing it right this very moment, so I think I'm over it. Like, I think I, I, think I made it through. I think, I think that's gone. Like, and, and, and by the way, I'm the pastor. Like, if I share that with it, I don't want to cause them to stumble. If I were to share with a brother um, what I'm struggling with, that's a burden they weren't made to care. I don't want to do that. As I begin to justify why I don't need to, um, to confess. And the lie about me continues, right? I'm actually lying about who I am in this moment. I'm putting on a mask. I'm good. I'm holy. I'm following Jesus. I'm in love with Jesus. I've never been closer, never been better, feeling anointed and highly favored and all of that. I'm I'm lying to to, um, keep people at a distance. But guilt or that conviction inside of me, it forces me to face the reality that I am capable of better. You know, that's really what conviction is. Shame tells you that you're broken in a way that you're not capable of doing good. This is who I am. Like, that's one of my, I love, I love AA. I think it's a fantastic program, and I think millions of people around the world have found freedom through that program. But one of my issues is I hate that you introduce yourself as an addict. Because I feel kind of like you are giving yourself permission to say, I will never have victory over this. I'm not capable of better than this. And that's what shame says. But guilt, Holy Spirit conviction says, you're way too awesome to act like that. This isn't who you are. It calls you up to your actual identity. And so we have this thing going on while I'm justifying my behavior. The Holy Spirit's saying, come on, you and I both know you're not a victim here. Come on, you and I both know you can forgive. That's what this conviction of the Holy Spirit comes with this grace that I have to admit eventually, yeah, I can do better. I know I can do better. But I say things like, it didn't really hurt anyone. No one needs to know. And justifying inevitably leads to the next step on the cycle, blame. Sin not only affects my relationship with God, but it affects my relationship with others. And we can see this in the very first sin. How long did it take? How long between the time Adam and Eve ate the apple to Adam saying, the woman you gave me? If I would have had a dad who loved me, if my wife was only praying for me more, if, if my husband was this, if, if my kids would just clean their room or do what they were told or what it's inevitably justifying ends up in blame because blame becomes a part of the justifying right if 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 I'm going to justify my behavior there must be some reason I did the thing and it's probably someone else's fault I love this uh this quote from the book blame is often commentary on the unresolved hidden sin in the blamer Blame is often commentary on the unresolved hidden sin in the blamer. I can't tell you how many times I've seen famous pastors and preachers and all of that, they come out hard against a certain sin or a certain thing, or they're always always talking about it. Actually, 
people in my life, sin comes to light, and now all of a sudden, the way they joked before, the way they talked before, you go, oh, the very thing that they were pointing the finger at was going on inside of them. When Samuel caught Saul in sin, when Saul didn't wait, um, didn't wait for the, the for the prophet to come and give the up the offering before they went to war. Samuel came and he called him out. Samuel says this in First Samuel thirteen, "What have you done?" And Saul said, "Blame." When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed. So it's the people's fault. And by the way, Samuel, it's your fault too. And that the Philistines, and it's the Philistines' fault. It's every, ironically, there's only one person in this story who's not at fault. It's crazy how this works. So it's the people's fault, it's Samuel's fault, and it's the Philistines' fault that they had mustered at Michmash I said, now the Philistines will come down against me, me, the victim, me, not us, me, poor little old me, the victim, at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. Oh, I didn't want to do it, but I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Blame, justifying. There's an internal battle going on in Saul. He knows he's wrong. And here's the thing. Because deep down, I know it's not true. Blame reinforces shame. Blame reinforces shame. Isn't that so funny? Because I think I use blame to avoid shame. I don't want to face the music for what I've done. I'm scared to look at myself in the mirror, so I blame. But actually, as I'm blaming, I'm reinforcing the shame because my heart, in my heart of hearts, I know it's not their fault. And because it was shame that got me into this mess, that was at the top of the cycle, right? All these negative self-thoughts. Now, blame leads to shame, and we're, leading, we're, we're back around to the top of the cycle again. And shame really is just unhealthy self-thoughts. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says there's something wrong with me. And only grace through love can overcome shame. I can't experience love unless I trust others with the real me. Only grace through love can overcome shame. I can't experience love unless I trust others with the real me. Remember, when you're wearing a mask, you can't receive love. Only your mask receives love. And this leads to a loss of hope. Self-focus and deception breed hopelessness. I don't trust myself. And obviously, I don't trust anyone else. So I begin to doubt my relationship with Christ. And I look back at my track record, and I say, well, this is who I am. And it's probably who I always will be. And I get to a place where I don't like being me. I'm so grateful for the Apostle Paul and his transparency, because we see this in him, this conflict, this battle against hopelessness. In Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's got this battle going. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ calling himself a wretched man He's saying, in, the, in my mind, I want to serve God, but in my flesh, I'm trapped in sin. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, confessing this in a letter to, to the Romans that now has been read by billions of people throughout history. That's transparency. <laughs> Earlier in the book, he wrote, I know nothing good dwells in me. Grace isn't about living as if we don't sin. It's living in the hope and the power of the provisions of God when we sin. So, in this place of loss of hope, we get totally demoralized and discouraged. And actually, there's a gap of time between loss of hope and back around to the top of the cycle, where we feel like maybe we have, you know, victory. We don't feel good, but we have victory. Like, because what happens is loss of hope makes me so disgusted with my behavior that I actually don't struggle so much for a while. But it's not that I'm overcoming sin because I'm healed, delivered, experiencing the love of Jesus. It's actually a prison of guilt and shame that's motivating this. <clears throat> and I tell myself things like, maybe this last time got my attention. That's the last time I'm ever looking at pornography. It was so bad. I feel, I feel so bad about it. I feel like I broke, some, broke something. I'm never going to do that again. And we have this gap where it's like, that works for a while. But we can't punish ourselves into holiness. And eventually... That gap closes, and we end up back in the, at the top of the cycle. So, what's the solution? This chapter of the book is called Two Solutions. Re the room of grace, the room of good intentions offers one solution, resistance. Resist, resist, resist. And the whole time you're resisting, you're going from step to step to step. Resist, resist. And you're, and you're just going through the cycle. But the room of grace offers a solution that this other room can't. And actually, the solution to this is very, very, very simple. The solution is being my true self, no mask. No false story. Trust others with who I really am and tell someone. Talk to someone. Bring it to the light. It's very simple. When I, when I went down to um, Denver, one of the first things my counselor said to me, this kind of blew my mind. He said, you know, addicts are very boring and predictable. They're very predictable. This happens in their life. I know exactly how they're going to respond. This happens, they do this. Very predictable. In other words, it's a cycle. It's a pattern. This happens, this happens. This happens, this happens. It's very predictable. Free people are unpredictable. And I went to my room that day. And I'm, I'm dwelling on what he thought, said because I'd never thought about, that, it, thought about that way. And then I got to thinking about this other scripture in Romans that we all know well. In Romans 12, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I've always visualized pattern as like the pattern for a dress. Don't conform to the pattern. But when I talked to my counselor and he was sharing that picture with me, I saw it differently. When my kids, I think it's like kindergarten, first grade, they practice patterns where on the page it'll be like blue circle, red circle, blue circle, blank. What's next? And they have to write a red circle. Two, four, six, eight, blank. Ten. They have to identify patterns, right? And so I, 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 I thought, what? That, that picture to me fit this so much better. Now all of a sudden I see it. Like, hey, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Like temptation, sin, temptation, sin, negative self-thoughts, blaming, justifying, shame. This is the pattern of the world. You don't have to operate in this pattern. 
Free people are unpredictable. We have options. Like, when you're free, you have options when someone hurts you. When you're free, you have options when somebody abuses you. So don't conform to the pattern. Let's just not even play this game. So how do we break the cycle? It's simple. Live authentically. Be yourself. God already knows how bad it is. Actually, he knows how bad it is better than you do. Trust me, you're worse than you think you are. He knows. So you're obviously not fooling him. And his opinion is the only one that matters. If he loves you unconditionally in that state, why would I disagree with God and not love you? Why would I have a standard higher than his for my love? So live authentically. Anyone who is unable to love you in that authentic place, they're wrong. And they're not living authentically. And they're not free. So let's... Let me pray for you. Lord, uh, I I hope this message isn't super discouraging looking at this cycle of sin. I like to focus... Uh, when I talk, I like to focus on your hope and your cross and what you did. And, but every once in a while, I think it's healthy for us to look and say, okay, this is how sin has it wor- its work in my life. If we can understand the strategy of the enemy, maybe we can combat it. And so, Lord, I, I'm asking for just Holy Spirit insight into ourselves. Uh one of the great historical men of God has this super powerful quote. He says, know yourself that you may know God. Lord, I pray that we would know ourselves. Holy Spirit, we just invite you. When this cycle kicks up in our lives, when negative self-thoughts start to come, when that legalistic resistance, temptation, resistance, and hiddenness thing starts to come, where we start to plan and plot, when we, when we take action and we start to blame and justify and all those things start to come into our lives, Lord, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to break the cycle. We invite you to break the cycle. And actually, I just feel from the Holy Spirit, don't, don't worry about this wheel and understanding it. So, I just feel the Holy Spirit is in the room to break patterns in your life and in your family. Like there's generational patterns. This is how our family handles things like this. This is what we do. In our family, we get divorced. In our family, we struggle with addiction. In our family, we have poverty. And I just feel the Holy Spirit coming and inviting you to break the cycle. You're not a victim. You're not trapped. He has empowered you with the power of choice. And his grace is here to empower you to make better choices. You're not who you think you are. So Holy Spirit, just, would you just break patterns and cycles in our lives? Show us where we're bound. It's like, you know, we have healthy disciplines in our life where every morning I wake up and I read my Bible or I, every morning I wake up and I exercise or whatever, these healthy patterns. And, but there's also unhealthy sort of disciplines in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would break those. Break those thought patterns off of your people. Lord, that we would be who you made us to be. And Lord, I pray for this church that we would be a, a true, authentic people of grace. Lord, would you just ever so graciously pull our masks off that we could be real I just, I just want to, as sort of the, 
you know, father or whatever of this house, I just want to declare this, that there is nothing you could confess that would disqualify you from grace in this house. It doesn't mean you don't have a mess to clean up. It doesn't mean you don't have to work through some things. But this is a place of grace. You are free to be yourself. Free to be where you are and allow God to change you into who you were made to be. So, Lord, as we come to the table today, we acknowledge that your blood and your body broke the cycle. We no longer have to be trapped. We've been set free. So as we come to the table, Holy Spirit, we, we come making a prophetic declaration. The cycle of poverty ends today. This cycle of sickness ends today. This cycle of shallow, unhealthy relationships ends today. I just really feel this from the Lord. As we come to the table, I, I think we're supposed to make those confessions. There are people in this room, there's something uh, like generational that you're, you carry. Or, or maybe it's just in your life, you notice a pattern. And just as we come to the table, rather than having, I don't, I don't think we need to have a long, drawn-out conversation. But can we just say, this pattern breaks today. Whatever that thing is in your life. This pattern of, of broken relationships. This pattern of discouragement and hopelessness. This pattern of depression breaks today. I just feel like God wants to break those things off today. So we come to the table and we receive the freedom to break the cycle. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.